Please remain standing as you're able. When they asked Jesus what the greatest commandment was, he responded with the Shema of Deuteronomy 6.4 and added, Love your neighbor from Leviticus 19. So we follow his example this morning, if you'll follow after me. Shema Israel. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Ahad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. We've been journeying with Abraham, and a couple of weeks ago, Abraham was told by God that in just a year, the child he'd waited 25 years for would come. And so now we pick up the story with selected verses from Genesis 21 about the birth of that child. So the Lord visited Sarah just as he had said and did for her exactly what he had spoken. And so in her old age, she bore for Abraham, uh, conceived and bore for Abraham a child. Abraham called the child born to him, which Sarah gave birth to, Isaac. Now the child uh, grew and was weaned. And on the day he was weaned, Abraham threw a great feast. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, scoffing. And so she said to Abraham, Cast out this bondwoman and the son of a bondwoman, for, the, for no son of a bondwoman will be heir with my son, namely Isaac. Now this matter greatly displeased Abraham because this was his son. But God said to Abraham, Do not let this matter be displeasing in your sight because of the lad and because of the bondwoman. For uh, your, your seed shall be called in Isaac. But the son of the bondwoman will also be a great nation in my sight because he also is your seed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. I think it's pretty clear in the scriptures that Sarah doesn't get near the good press that Abraham gets. And so I was thinking about that this week, and I figured perhaps it's, it involves gender bias. Or maybe it involves that Sarah made a couple of decisions along the way that did not reflect very well upon her. Uh, the first decision was after they had waited for a number of years to have this child, and the child did not come that Sarah came up with the plan that said to Abraham, why don't you get together uh, with uh, the slave woman uh, and uh, Hagar, and then you will have a child. Now what you need to know about that plan is in the mores of that day, it was not considered immoral or unethical, and it's clear that Abraham at least consented to the plan. But then there was another decision that Sarah made and uh, that we often hear about, and that is when she heard that finally in the next year she was going to have this long-awaited child and she heard the news and thought of her 90-year-old body, she laughed. But if you know the whole story in Genesis, the news came to Abraham long before it came to Sarah that in a year they would have a child, and Abraham had the same response. He laughed as well. You know, I think there's a lot to commend Sarah to us this morning. I wanted to pass off a couple to you. The first is, I think Sarah is a very patient woman. Can you imagine, for years and years, she has set up tent and taken down the tent and set up the tent again, going God knows where, because only God knew. Sarah wasn't told where they were going, and yet patiently she makes the journey with Abraham. She's been patient. 
waiting more than 25 years for this promised child to come into her womb. She's not only patient, I think she's extremely loving. She obviously loves Abraham to make this long journey with him and and stick with him through all the twists and turns of this journey. Even though twice during the journey, Abraham uh, tried to pass her off as his sister. Twice he lied about who Sarah was so that she ended up in the house of another man. And yet in spite of that, she still loves him. And she also loves this child, Isaac, for whom she has waited so long. She loves him so much that she comes up with a plan. And the plan on the day that he is weaned, which in that day could probably be anywhere between age three on up to age five, on the day of this great celebration, she tells her husband, I want you to free the slave woman. Get rid of her. And take the son with her, Ishmael. Now, uh, what Sarah knows is the rules of the day, which are if a, if a father, a man, has a son by, the slave, by a slave woman, as long as the slave woman is in that house, the child born to her and born to him is an heir. And so she knows that technically Ishmael is every bit an heir, every much an heir as Isaac is, even though one's the child of the promise and the other apparently is not. And Abraham has a great deal of wealth. So because she loves Isaac so much, she comes up with this plan and basically said, free her, set her free, turn her loose. Now, Abraham, Abraham obviously is upset about it, but the plan behind all of this, so the idea behind all of this is so that Isaac will get the inheritance. This is a mother who loves her son, and she's going to fight for everything that she believes is due him. Sarah has many good qualities, but I believe in the story today she's made two major miscalculations. The first one is this. The first one is she can't quite calculate that Abraham considers both Isaac, the child born through Sarah, and Ishmael, the son born through Hagar, to be his sons. She's she's misunderestimated, we might say, that uh, Abraham's love, and so she wants to force a father to choose between his two sons. Love one, discard the other. What mother would make that choice? What father would make that choice? A gross miscalculation on Sarah's part. But even more so, by implication or inference, we might say, she's forcing the same child, uh, same choice rather, on the God of the universe. Bless Isaac. Discard Ishmael. Run everything through Isaac. Have nothing for Ishmael. And she wants to force the God of the universe as well as Abraham into making that choice between the two children. Now, there are many choices that need to be made in life. And in fact, our life is actually a result of the choices that we make. And I think people need to be confronted with the choice between good and evil, between God's way and other ways, between following light, following darkness, walking faith, or living in doubt, between following Jesus in community or not following Jesus. I think those are all choices that need to be made. People should make them. But that doesn't mean that we take the results of those choices and come back to God and say, now you choose God. You choose to love those who choose you and not love those who don't choose you. God, you choose to bless those who obey you and not to bless those who don't obey you. God, you choose and love the ones that we want to be loved and don't love the others. 
You can't force God into that choice. We have choices to make. But that's not a choice that you can push God into making. It's interesting that Jesus will, many years later, tell a story about a father who has two sons. And in this father has two sons, we know it is the prodigal son. Remember, one is uh, wasteful, basically tells his father to drop dead, takes his inheritance, squanders it, and, and then comes back. And the older son who has stayed there wants the, the father to make a choice. Love me, disinherit him. Love me, ignore him. Choose between your two sons. And the father in the prodigal son story, no more than our God in the universe is going to make that choice. The father will not choose. He said, this is your brother. He's my son. And then, by the way, to the older brother, and everything I have is yours. Because what's left of the inheritance does, in fact, belong to the older son. But you can't force me to love one and not love the other. I remember in Acts, the day that Peter finally gets a realization that you can't force God into those sorts of corners. Peter has a dream one day. And the dream is that and he's told to kill and eat things that Jews don't normally eat. And then, after that, a messenger comes to the house. And the messenger fetches Peter and sends him to the house of a Gentile. And he is led to share the love of God and the good news of Christ with the Gentile. Holy Spirit shows up and all sorts of things break loose. And then Peter comes to this realization in Acts 10, 34. He says, now I understand. Now I get it. God does not show favorites. It's the realization of Peter. You can't force God to love one and not love the other. I think Jesus has been setting Peter and the disciples up for this for at least three years. Jesus taught them such things as, God makes it rain on the just and the undressed. Well, you know how badly we need rain. And God is saying, it doesn't matter whether you're good or evil. Rain will come on both. Both get the same opportunity to live, to survive, to thrive. On the Sermon on the Mount, he said, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Because undoubtedly, Jesus knew that the very enemies they hated were the people that God loved. One of the great rabbis of the 20th century was a man named Abraham Joshua Heschel. And he used to really tick people off. Because even though he had survived and escaped Nazi Germany, in the years following the war, he would go to conventions where Jewish leaders were gathered, and he'd quote to them from Isaiah 19, beginning in verse 23. Here's the paraphrase. One day, Egyptians, Assyrians, and Israelites will all worship God together. And he'd look at them and he'd say, Our God is also the God of our enemies. And they just grind their teeth. They didn't know what to do with that. What sort of message is that? God must certainly hate them because of what they've done. They had made wrong and terrible choices. And yet Heschel was trying to say, our enemies have made bad choices. They've not honored God. But God still loves them. A number of us in the church are reading an interesting book. It's called Following Upwards. And the book's written by a Franciscan priest who in New Mexico runs a center for contemplation and action. Yeah, I love that. It's, it, it, both of them, contemplation and action. And in this book, one of the things he said is it, it's his opinion that the deeper you grow in faith, the more mature you are in faith, the more you will do away with what he calls dualistic thinking, that God only loves these people and doesn't love the others. He said the more that we grow, in, in his mind, 
the more we open the door for God to love other people just as much as God loves us. Sarah can't open that door. I don't know all the reasons Sarah can't open that door. I have some theories. I mean, I understand as a parent how sometimes protective we can be. I understand sometimes that we think in order for us to have a future, we have to take the future away from someone else. But I also know that God is trying to teach Sarah that the future doesn't belong to her. The future belongs to God. That she doesn't need to open a door for her son. Because God, in fact, will open that door for Isaac and will do it without closing the door on Ishmael. You don't have to hate one in order to love the other. Sarah trusts God enough to wait for this child's birth and existence, but somehow can't quite trust when it comes to the matter of this child's future and this child's security. I mean, I didn't take the journey Sarah did for 25 years, so I'm in no position to throw rocks. All I can say is there are times in my life when I will not extend to others the fact that God loves them, when I will not see others as loved as much as God loves me. And, you know, daily we get that opportunity to to divide the world into those God loves and those whom God doesn't love. I mean, basketball tournaments? Elections, threats to our border, our national security, every day presents us an opportunity to say, God loves us, but but not them. Right, God? Isn't this the choice you'd make, God? God must roll the heavenly eyes. I thought we went through this with Sarah. Isaac is the chosen one. The line runs through him. But Ishmael is blessed and valued and treasured as well. And what I've realized is when I withhold love from other people, I think other people are less loved than I am, it's usually not a reflection on them. It's not usually a reflection on God. It's usually a reflection of how I'm feeling in my own life, that maybe I'm not feeling as loved as I really am. And so because I'm uncertain about my own status and value in God's eyes, I tend to want to take that status and value away from others. It's almost like God's love is a zero-sum game. You know, it's this big a piece of pie, and if I get this big a piece, it's only if I can take away some of the piece of somebody else who's not living the way, well, that frankly, I think they ought to live, and I believe, therefore, God thinks they ought to live that way. Is it like that? Is there only so much of God's love to go around? Can God only love Isaac more by loving Ishmael less? And I think when I think that way and live that way, it's not really a reflection on that person or God. It's a reflection on me. And what I've learned is the more I am disconnected from the love of God in my life, the more I try to disconnect other people from that love. It's as simple as that. Years ago, we did a series in the sanctuary. We did it in Sunday school classes. And we called it Identity to Destiny. And, and the basic theory was this, that once we know who we are in Christ, that we are loved unconditionally and how valuable we are to, in Christ, once we get the identity, the action will follow. When we start from a basis of God's love in Christ, we'll figure out the right things to do. That, I, that destiny follows our identity. That action follows our being and whether we live into our being as loved people. 
And I find that that's still true in my life. When I want to take God's love away from another person, it's probably because I'm feeling a bit unloved myself. But are any of us unloved? Any of us? Would a father really love one and not the other? Years ago, as a young pastor, I was in a hospital, um, a large conference room, and the retiring head of the chaplain's department at that hospital was telling us his life story. And I remember what he said. He said, I thought the day I became a Christian that I would start getting special treatment from God. And he said, the day I became a pastor to all of God's special people, I thought I'd really get special treatment from God. He said, but as I grew older and my eyes were open, I began to realize that I had been getting special treatment all along. We're all loved. We're all valued infinitely by God. Is it possible that we could extend that to others?